As we do continue to read sequentially through Luke's uh, gospel, we're now making it to the end. Uh, By God's grace of this chapter, you may recall that the last several weeks, uh, we have seen Jesus at a dinner party, as uh, Dale Ralph Davis called his uh, sermons on that section, having preacher for dinner. Uh, And it means a different thing in a different context, perhaps. But but Jesus was there and was being questioned and was teaching and was saying some things that maybe some of the Pharisees uh, who were at that dinner party didn't quite like all that much. And now as Jesus leaves... Uh, we assume he is greeted by the crowds that have been accompanying him everywhere he goes. Jesus resumes, having taught there at uh, at that dinner party, the parable of the great banquet. He now uh, continues his journey toward Jerusalem, and as he does, everywhere he goes, he is surrounded by great crowds who want to get near to this man that they want to know more about, this this teacher who goes about doing good and, and healing and helping and driving out demons and teaching the way of God, and many are curious about Jesus, and Jesus is not content for people merely to be curious about him, and that's what we're going to find tonight. In Luke chapter 14, we'll read the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 25, and going to verse 35, you can find that in an ESV, most of them in page 874, if you haven't already. Before we read this word together, uh, we're going to go to the Lord uh, together again in prayer and ask him to bless our study of it tonight. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. You call us in this passage, uh, those of us with ears to hear, that we might hear what you have to say. And so we pray that by your spirit you would make it so. Help us to believe and trust and make us your disciples, O Lord. Make us willing because of uh, the great cost that you paid for your people. Make us willing to lay down our very lives for you and to follow you wherever you would lead us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now please stand together with me as we give attention to the reading of God's word. Hear God's word as we find it, Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king? going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together tonight. You may be seated. (coughs) 
all the way back in, uh, in 1955, back when there was still uh, a market for such things, uh, Parker Brothers introduced a Bible-based board game, and it was called Going to Jerusalem. I will not ask how many of you may have seen it or played it. Uh, there are still some copies floating around. You can find them on eBay if you'd like to. And in fact, just this past April, uh, as a man on YouTube did an unboxing uh, and a tour of this game, Going to Jerusalem. The, the game featured 12 tiny plastic disciples. Those were the game tokens. Uh, and, a, and a game board uh, with a map of the Holy Land in the center and different stages of, of Jesus' journey with his disciples around the outside. And each of your little figurines was complete with a beard and a robe and a staff, and they looked very biblical. And the point of the game as you played as several of these uh, tiny plastic apostles was to trek across the Holy Land and to make it to Mount Zion before the others. Think of a game that is two parts candy land added to one part sword drill. Uh, the, the players had to look up Bible verses in order to move their tokens uh, around the board. And it was marketed to families, it was marketed to churches, it e even came with extra instructions for uh, making the play suitable for uh, Sunday school classes and, and larger groups. Uh, one pastor who remembered the game from his childhood uh, recalled that you always started in Bethlehem, he said, and you made stops at the Mount of Olives, Bethsaida, Capernaum, the Stormy Sea, Nazareth, and Bethany. If you played well, you went all the way to the triumphal entry, but you never got to the crucifixion or the resurrection. There were no demons or angry Pharisees. You only made your way through the nice stories. It was a safe adventure. It was perfectly suited for a Christian family on a Sunday afternoon walk with Jesus. We probably shouldn't expect too much from a toy company. And we probably shouldn't be too uh, surprised to find that people always find ways to make Christianity marketable. But inevitably, when discipleship is, is mass-produced to appeal to a wider audience, the first things that are stripped from the packaging to make it more appealing, the first things that are stripped are the denial and the suffering that Jesus lays on his people. Far easier. It's, it's always easier to present discipleship as some sort of game that you can pick up when you want to play it and you can put away when you don't want to play it. Far easier to present that than to show discipleship as some sort of life-demanding sacrifice. But in reality, discipleship without demands is not discipleship at all, at least not according to Jesus. And so we find, as you read the Gospels, this is not a unique thing where Jesus tells the people who are gathered around him or are very curious as to what's going on. We see very often he calls sinners to come and to follow him, and yet when they come close enough, he says, now wait a minute. Are you sure you know what you're getting into? And he cautions them a little bit. He gives them full disclosure. He wants them to know exactly what it's going to look like to follow him and where he is headed. And according to Jesus, discipleship is costly. Very often it's hazardous. And those who want to come after Jesus must be ready to deny their relationships and to die to themselves and to abandon their belongings. Following Jesus always costs disciples everything. There's no exception. That's always the case. That's what Jesus tells us here, that following Jesus always costs disciples everything. Now, it's true, of course, that salvation is free. 
by the amount of things that we give up, the things that we sacrifice, the things that we give over. We can never win God's approval. We can never earn His grace. Salvation is always a gift of the Lord through faith, and faith itself is also a gracious gift received from His hand, given by His Holy Spirit. Salvation is always without price to those who come, and yet you know that being a Christian brings associated costs. And Jesus wants us to have a realistic view of what it looks like, what it means to follow him. He wants us to understand the demands of discipleship. So in this passage, he, he puts before us the cost of discipleship. He also tells us that we need to make a calculation about discipleship. And he warns us about a consequence of false devotion. These are going to be our three points tonight. First, the cost of discipleship. Secondly, the calculation of following Jesus. And thirdly, the consequence of false devotion. Now, the cost of discipleship, this shows up at the beginning, and it's, uh, it's the most immediately recognizable feature in the passage you heard as we went through. I emphasize in the reading this threefold repeated statement that there are some people who, Jesus says, cannot be my disciple. It shows up three times. And so there are uh, three costs, in a sense, three non-negotiables, three musts, of discipleship, of the Christian life. And Jesus says first in verse 26 that disciples must hate their families. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's a difficult teaching. It's meant to be that way. It's meant to be a difficult teaching. It's meant to be something that stops us in our tracks and makes us say, wait a minute, did he, did he really just say that? Is that really what Jesus is saying discipleship is about? Do I have to hate my family? And Jesus is telling us that discipleship demands such a loyalty, such a devotion to Christ that by comparison to our love for him, all other loves in our lives, the closest human relationships, the one flesh relationship of husband and wife, all other relationships by comparison to our love for Christ will look like hatred. And they must. Which Jesus is not telling us that we have to hate our families absolutely in an absolute sense. But hate in a vacuum, as it were. A scientific a double-blind placebo experiment. That's not what we're talking about here. Jesus upheld the fifth commandment, you know. He, he took Pharisees to task for twisting and interpreting God's law in such a way that they could weasel out from under that command to honor their father and mother. There's no room for dishonor of family in Jesus' teaching. He told his disciples very often they ought to love one another just as Jesus loved them. He told us that we ought to love our enemies. We ought to do good to those who hate us. Jesus' teaching is full of the command to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So no, Jesus isn't turning a corner now and, and abandoning everything he's ever said about what it means to love those who are around us. Jesus isn't telling us to hate our families absolutely, but rather to hate our families relatively, by comparison, in a sense. That was Jesus teaching in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That's the idea here. This is the way sometimes that, that Israelites, the Old Testament even, spoke about love and hatred. Sometimes it shows up this way. Genesis chapter 29, verse 30 says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. 
He loved them both, but he loved one of them more. And then the very next verse says uh, that when God saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Well, which is it? Is she loved more or less or is she hated? Well, the idea here is, is a comparative love. Jesus is calling us to such a preferential loyalty to Jesus that we would never hesitate to follow him, even if it meant the cost of losing our family. If discipleship comes down to a decision between walking with Jesus or keeping peace with the people in our home, in our family, our ancestors, our, our tribe, whoever it is, if it comes down to a decision between the two, we must choose Jesus every time. This is the universal demand that Jesus lays upon his people, his disciples. And this is the cost that some of the people in this room have paid. Some of the people in this room are paying even now. I know that there are people who are here who were converted out of a family tradition and, and it was a complete 180 to go in the direction of Christianity, to trust in Christ, because that is not the way you were raised. That is not the culture in your home. That is not what you were taught and how you were brought up. And there were parents who were disappointed, who thought you were crazy for putting your faith in some resurrected Savior that you read about in a book that was written 2,000 years ago. They thought it was ludicrous. And you said, I, I don't have a choice. I follow my parents or I follow my Savior, and, and I'm going to choose my Savior. And, and by comparison to him, I'll honor my parents, but by comparison to him, it, it's going to look like I hate my parents, that I'm stomping on everything they've ever taught me. There are people here in this room who have experienced that. There are siblings that you know at family gatherings you can't have a civil conversation with. You can't talk about anything meaningful, at least. Not because you dislike one another, not because uh, there's some animosity that's there hidden beneath the surface, just because your life is so shaped by your Christian worldview, by following Christ, by, by believing in Him and understanding His Word and trusting what He's told you and rejoicing that He's your Savior and has saved you and your siblings, well, they just don't, they don't care at all about that. and They're so wrapped up in the world and they're just not a point of contact. And you know what it is, and there are children who grow up and who abandon the faith and turn their back on Christ and the church. And your backwards views continue to be a point of contention and a point of tension between you and them. And by comparison, it looks as though you might hate them because you're walking with Jesus. You're faced with a choice. Walk faithfully with Christ or win the approval of your family. And if you are a disciple, there is only one answer that you can give. It doesn't matter how costly it is. Relatively speaking, disciples must hate their families. The second cost, by the way, the, the first point has three subpoints, is going to be the majority of our time together. So if we are we're well past the time and you feel like, well, when are we going to move on? This is going to be an hour long. No, it's not going to be an hour long sermon. It's going to be long. It's not going to be that long. Second cost, disciples must surrender their lives. There's another call to loyalty here, and it's a loyalty that extends not just the exclusion of our families, but the exclusion of our loyalties to ourselves. And Jesus said in verse 26, whoever does not hate even his own life can't be my disciple. Who doesn't bear his cross and come after me can't be my disciple. Now we read this, and we recognize this immediately as a call to be prepared. If God should demand it, that we would lay down our lives, that we would, we would gladly die in order to become a witness to Jesus Christ and to his gospel. That we would own Christ 
rather than save ourselves and save our lives. And that's the cost that we see here. And around the world, in, in pockets of persecution, in places like Sri Lanka, and other places that we pray for week after week, we realize that there are Christians, there are witnesses, there are martyrs, martyr after martyr, who has answered this cost and has laid down their life. Not a call to, to die for their own sake, not a call to be witnesses to themselves, but as Jesus says, to bear their cross and to come after him. It's a call to die as a recognition of the Savior who died for us. A little-known uh, missionary, Elizabeth Freeman, and her husband, in 1857, they were both martyred for their faith in northern India. And just before her, uh, her death, in her last letter to her sister, she sent uh, these words. She said, I sometimes think our deaths would do more good than we could do in all our lives. And if so, his will be done. Should I be called to lay down my life, do not grieve, dear sister, that I came here, for most joyfully will I die for him who laid down his life for me. And we read Luke 14, and we recognize that call here, to be willing to lay down our lives, if need be, to follow Christ even to the death, to become a martyr, to become a witness to his gospel. And I'm convinced that the vast majority of the people in this room, those of you that I know, I'm convinced that you would not hesitate for a moment to lay down your life rather than deny your Savior. But as I examine my own heart, as I count and, and consider my own temptations, I think if you're anything like me, I think there are a lot of us in here, maybe many of us, who have a much harder time laying down our daily lives to be counted for Christ in the public sphere. That's also what this verse is about, by the way. Bearing your cross. Crucifixion was a public spectacle. It was never done off in a corner somewhere so nobody could see it. It was always done right in the view of everybody else. It was a form of execution, a form of death that was devised to be so gruesome, so horrific, that all the subjugated peoples who saw Rome doing it would just say, we'll give you anything. We'll give you any obedience that you require. Just don't do that. It was always a public spectacle. And the spectacle always began with the accused criminal, with the condemned person carrying the instrument of their execution through the city streets as a parade of this is what happens for those who go against the Roman Empire. Sometimes today we talk about struggling with sin or suffering and we talk about it lightly. We say that's just my cross to bear. Little things sometimes. We say it flippantly. You know, I work really hard at my job and nobody seems to notice, but <laughs> what can I do? I guess that's just my cross to bear. Now, I'm an angry person. I've always been an angry person, but I guess I just have to bear that cross. We talk about it very lightly, but cross-bearing is a very particular kind of suffering, a very particular cost that disciples pay for Jesus, and it is the suffering of being publicly shamed and ridiculed for our allegiance to Jesus Christ. Bearing our cross is, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, it is carrying in our body the death of Jesus. It means becoming a spectacle for Jesus' sake. Being afraid of the scorn that might come from a world that recognizes that we belong to Jesus. You see, carrying our cross isn't just about dying for Jesus, although it is. It's also about living for him. And the shame and the ridicule that sometimes comes along with those who live for Jesus in the public sphere. Again, I, I think that many of our brothers and sisters around the world know this cost of discipleship far better than we do, 
but here in the West, here in America even, we're beginning to return to that global norm of those who follow Jesus being shamed and being ridiculed for their faith. My friends in the UK tell me that uh, over there, it's, it's a little bit beyond where we are now. We're still catching up uh, to old England here in New England. And they tell me that over there, if, if you go into the public sphere and anybody knows that you're a Christian, anybody knows that you actually believe uh, Christian things, not that you just give lip service to it, but you actually believe what the scripture says. You, you believe there's a God who created you. You believe there's a God who, who gives particular moral demands. There's a God who sent his son into the world and, and gave him over to death to die for our sins and to be raised for our justification. If you actually believe those things, it's, it's like telling somebody that you believe that the pyramids were built by tiny green men and little spaceships from Mars. It's ridiculous. And if you work in the sciences, you work in industry, you work in any kind of business, and they know you're a Christian, it is an invitation to ridicule. Please lambast me, but just, just make me uh, the, the scorn of all the people. That's what it is. And we're catching up, but we're getting there. We're getting there. And this is the cost that comes with discipleship. Disciples must hate their families. They must surrender their lives. The third cost we see here, disciples must renounce their possessions. You've got to jump down to verse 33 for this one. Jesus gives a summary. He says, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I think I've spoken before uh, in, in a sermon perhaps about uh, our friends, Sarah and, and me, our, our friends from uh, seminary who went and ministered in China for several years. They went over to do some church planning ministry uh, with a church planting network that was there, and they were there for several weir- years with their children, and, and uh, just about two years ago, they came home on furlough, they thought, a couple months, just a couple months to come home and see their family in a couple months so that uh, the wife could give birth to their fourth child. And while they were home on furlough, actually while they were, while they were driving in a minivan that someone had loaned them from their church, uh, they got a call, and they were, uh, they were told that the network they worked with had been compromised. And already government officials were... Uh, were arresting and were questioning, interrogating some of the members of their church, trying to find names and contacts for the rest of the church network. Now, our friends technically were, were not barred from re-entering China. They could have gone back. But they knew that if they went back, they also would be brought in. They, they probably wouldn't be uh, imprisoned. They'd be deported. They, they probably wouldn't be tortured or anything like that, but they would be questioned. And they'd be pressured, and they would want to know, what are the other names? Where is the rest of this network? They would be pressured to give up the names of the other people who were still there, who were still trusting in Christ and the churches that were growing. And so they were faced with a decision. They came to the States with a couple duffel bags. They had just a few belongings with them. Their entire life was in China. All of their earthly belongings, they faced the decision. We go back to our things... Or do we try to maintain and, and not harm the work of Christ and of the church? You know, sometimes in the Gospels, Jesus called rich young rulers to sell all that they had, to give the proceeds to the poor. Sometimes he called his followers to sell their possessions and provide money bags that don't grow old. Sometimes he calls missionaries to leave their possessions halfway around the globe and start over again with nothing. Jesus also, we could make the the case, certainly, makes it easier for us. Jesus also uh, slept in beds. He he preached from boats that that were owned by his apostles. 
He was buried in a tomb that belonged to a very wealthy Christian. The early days of, of the Christian church, it was financed by the, by the gifts, by the generosity of prominent women, prominent men in the Christian community. So no, not every disciple is going to be called to sell everything they have. Not every disciple is going to be called like Christians in a, a vast uh, swath of the world to live in destitution simply because of their faith. But we are called to renounce our possessions. To hold all that we have with an open hand. Ready to put it away rather than to allow it to distract us from following Jesus. Eugene Peterson put it this way. If you're not willing to take what is dearest to you and kiss it goodbye, you cannot be Christ's disciple. There's a cost, isn't there? Nominal Christianity, says J.C. Ryle, is cheap and easy work. (laughs) To be named uh, on, on on a church roster somewhere, to have your name on a church roll, to show up from time to time, to know the answers to theological questions, to stand up for, for moral causes whenever they're popular. That's easy. It doesn't demand much, but discipleship comes with a cost. It costs us our families and our lives. It costs us our possessions. And Jesus wants us to know that he wants it all when he calls us to follow him. And he also wants us to do a calculation. That's our second point. And there at the center of this passage, Jesus uh, uses two parables to urge us to this calculation, to urge us not to be ignorant about what is at stake if we think that we can follow Jesus half-heartedly. The first parable is about building a tower. We don't have to think about some magnificent structure, some military fortification. The word uh, could also be used to, to talk about just sort of a lookout post in a vineyard somewhere. There's a wide range. It could be something small. In fact, it's probably something small because Jesus uh, is talking to the crowds here. Uh, He's talking to the huddled masses who are gathered around him who've come out from probably all sorts of different social strata. And maybe he has in mind some sort of vineyard lookout post and the watchman can can watch out for, uh, for whoever. It's not some huge thing, but it's a pretty significant undertaking. And Jesus says, which of you, desiring to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and count the cost? At least put together a material list. At least figure out what it's going to take. How many laborers? How long is this going to take? What's involved here? I don't want to be the one who begins and then is unable to finish. Don't you all sit down and count the cost, Jesus says. Last year, last spring actually, a year and a half ago, I started building a play structure for our kids in the backyard. As usual, not being an engineer myself, I over-engineered it. I made it way bigger than it needed to be in my mind, in my plans, and as a result, it became a multi-year project that still isn't finished. And for a while, when it still looked pretty shabby, I would always tell people when they would come and and they would visit at our home, I'd say, well, it's not done yet. (laughs) Hold on, I I haven't forgotten, I haven't... I haven't left it. This is all part of the plan. We're going to, on this side, there are going to be some swings, and eventually it'll have a roof, and, and maybe there are some other things that we're going to put on here. And I wanted people to make sure that, that I wasn't just abandoning this project, because quite honestly, for a while, it looked pretty rough. It was just posts sticking there in the ground with a little bit of a frame and not much else for quite a while. And, and it's so big that it's, it's the unintentional focal point of the yard, and you can't get away from it. You can't, you can't hide it. You can't ignore it. So you're standing there in the backyard, and oh, what's that? Yeah, I'm, I'm still on it. I'm, I'm still working. And I, I had this compulsion to make sure that people knew I wasn't forgetting about it. And Jesus' point here in this parable is that the bigger the project, the more thought you're going to put in to making sure you can carry it through. 
And that shouldn't be any different than the ways that we, we approach discipleship, is it? There are bound to be surprises. There, there are unintentional costs that we didn't see coming, although Jesus gives them to us up front. There are always setbacks. But the last thing we want is, is for our following of Jesus to be the kind of thing that people see and go, you still, you're still working there? Or is that it? Are you, are you stopping there? Is that, is that all you're doing? Right? We, we don't want that to be our witness for Christ. More importantly, though, consider the fact that, that this is a parable, and like all of Jesus' parable, uh, it is teaching us spiritual truth. So Jesus talks about mocking here, but, but the real danger of the abandoning our discipleship when it turns out harder than we expected, the real danger isn't just that people are going to mock us, which people love to do when self-professing Christians turn away from discipleship. You know that. The world loves to mock Christians when they leave it behind. They say, well, I, I was doing that, but no longer. But the real danger isn't just that people will mock us, but that our half measures will become not a witness for Christ, but a witness against us on the last day. Our half-hearted discipleship will become like a monument halfway built, like crumbling ruins, announcing to the world, announcing to us that we knew what we ought to do and simply weren't willing to do it. This happens in the church. It happens in our Christian lives. It happens for baptized children. And they grow up and they renounce their faith. And the waters of their baptism are no longer a blessing for them, but now are working as a curse. A witness that they were taught the truth and they turned away from it. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if you come to the table, you need to eat and drink with some discernment considering the body of Christ, considering the gospel and what he's done. Because if not, you, you don't eat and drink in fellowship to Christ. You eat and drink judgment upon yourself. These things happen. Our discipleship can be like that. It can be a witness to the world. It can be a witness against us that we knew what it cost to follow Jesus. And we said, I don't think so. Not for me. I don't want to do that. And we've got to do a calculation because discipleship is far too important to assume that we can walk away if it turns out more costly than we thought. It's also far too important to think that it will just go away if we ignore it. And that's the point of the second parable. Beginning of verse 31, it's the same call to sit and to consider, the same, same quiet deliberation of options. But, but the situation in verse 31 is different because this isn't about a man who, who might build or might not build. I don't know, we'll see how it turns out. Uh, I'll decide what I want to decide. No, this is, this is a king, he says. Uh, and the king is outnumbered two to one, and he has to decide how to save himself against insurmountable odds. Notice the language. This king is being invaded. It says, can you go out with 10,000 to meet the one who comes against you, who comes against him? He's being invaded. There's another king, a more powerful king, who's coming against him, who's going to take over his kingdom. This is not an option of just waiting to see what might happen. I don't know. I'll make a decision someday. There's an urgency. There's a decision that is pressed upon him. He needs to count the cost. And so it is for us all. We've heard it twice already in our service today, but Paul preached to the Athenians. Acts chapter 17, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The day is fixed. 
the man is appointed, the reality of God's judgment bears down upon us all. And yes, to be a disciple of Christ is going to cost us everything, but not to be a disciple of Christ is going to cost us eternally much more than that. Phil Riken says the first parable asks us, can we afford to follow Jesus? The second parable asks us, can we afford not to? So discipleship comes with a cost. And the cost is great. And, and Jesus wants us to do the calculation because there's a consequence that comes along with false devotion. On the final verses of this passage, Jesus issues a warning. He's always doing that. Uh, we come uh, to the word and I want to end the sermon on a high note and I want everybody to feel good and happy. And Jesus typically ends his sermons with a downer, with a warning. It's an important warning. He issues this warning to the crowds that are accompanying him, those who might merely be dabbling at discipleship, but just are, are on the periphery. They want to know what this is all about. And Jesus says, salt is good. And we know that from his other teachings. He calls his disciples the salt of the earth. That's a good thing. It, it has a preservative quality. Jesus' disciples have a, a sort of seasoning of the culture around them as they spread the savor of Christ. Everywhere they go, it's a good thing to be the salt of the earth. It's a good thing to be a disciple. It's a blessing by God to be used to witness to Jesus. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now you've got to put yourself uh, in the first century to even understand the question because salt, as we think of it, sodium chloride, table salt, uh, it's, it doesn't change in the same sense. It can't lose its distinctive flavor. And you can go to Market Basket and you can buy that little paper tube from Morton's with a little girl dancing on the front. You can put it in your cabinet and you can come back years later and it's just as salty as it ever was because it's been, uh, you know, it's been chemically extracted and refined and purified and it's not going anywhere. But that's not what the people had in Jesus' day. Real salt, salty salt, the good stuff, the expensive stuff was very expensive and very hard to find. So most of the peasants, at least, in Jesus' day, well, they contented themselves with something that looked like salt and tasted enough like salt that people were willing to pay a little bit of money for it. But it wasn't stored properly. Actually, it was just a mix of, uh, of several different uh, minerals that had all been distilled, most likely, from, from the Dead Sea. And there was a, a whole mix of stuff in there. And if it wasn't stored correctly, all the actual sodium that was in it leached out and it left behind uh, these, these dirty flakes of, of, of salt-looking residue. In fact, it is exactly the stuff, the grit that the priest would spread in the temple when it rained so that the people wouldn't slip on the pavement. That's why Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 5 that saltless salt is only good for trampling underfoot. Just for traction, that's it. But here the warning is even more stark than that. He says it's not good for the garden, this salt without flavor. It can't be added to the compost heap. It's simply thrown away. Jesus is teaching spiritual truths. This is a picture of judgment. Jesus is telling us that real discipleship, costly discipleship, is always going to have that distinctive flavor. Actually, it can't lose its flavor, its, its distinctive taste. But the cheap stuff will always be revealed for what it is. There might be a time when the two look similar. There might be a time when the taste is almost indistinguishable, but eventually the imposter is exposed. There's no use. There's no room in God's kingdom for false disciples posing as the real thing. 
this morning calls for contemplation. There is, there's a theological distinction here that, that we can't understand if we just rush through this like, like a child eating a candy bar. This calls for contemplation. That's why Jesus told us to sit down, to consider, to pay attention to what he's saying. This is why he separates out of the crowd those with ears to hear. And maybe that's why he separated you out of the crowd because you had ears to hear for whatever unknown reason he called you to hear what he's saying. And he's telling us this distinction. Here's the distinction. That discipleship is never what makes us God's people. We don't, we don't work our way into God's favor. We can't earn his grace because of how much we give up, because of what we do for him, because of how much we've given over, because of what costs we've paid. Discipleship never makes us God's people, but it's always what reveals us as his. No one is saved by the strength of their discipleship. It is never because we have given enough away for Jesus that we will be accepted by God. Yet those who have been accepted by God in Christ will always be willing to give themselves away for him. Remember the words of Elizabeth Freeman, I will gladly give my life for the one who died for me. That's the distinction. That's, that's the message for those with ears to hear. And so brothers and sisters, count the cost. Count the cost of following your Savior. He laid down his life in order to take it up again, and he calls you to lay down your life and walk with him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for this word, though it is heavy and sometimes hard to receive late on a Sunday evening. We pray that as we think about the week that lies before us, as we think about returning to jobs and school and relationships and family, that you would make us to walk with you, that you would make us your disciples. You would make us willing, O oh Lord, if you should call us to lay down our lives and to pay any cost. O oh Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe that you are the one who has paid the price and you are the one who has given all the obedience that we could never give. And give us, O oh Lord, that faith that surrenders ourselves to you. Do it for your name's sake and for your work and your people, we pray. Amen.